Welcome to the Worlds of Maybar audiobook podcast. Previously on Echelon, Soma received a threat from the mayor of Hemstock. Paul got a tip on where his murderer is. And Aramis realized she needs to break the supernatural bond she has with Paul. And now, Chapter 3 of Echelon. Should I throw some rocks up at it? Bosco tilted his head back to look straight up at Jin's house. I believe no one is home, sir. Nathan grumbled and kicked a stone into the river that ran 15 meters below where Jin's house stood suspended in the air. Nathan needed to talk to Jin immediately to debrief on his meeting with Dan, but he'd got to Chrysoprase only to find out that Jin had flown off in his house ship to park on the outskirts of Hemstock. Fortunately, Nathan now had his own semi-flying craft, even if it was a rundown work van that was barely faster than taking a train. Hey! Nathan threw a pebble up at the house. It bounced off the rough, raw steel plating and headed back almost right for Nathan's head. He ducked as it hit the ground near him. Bosco watched all of this without commenting. Why are you throwing things up at my house? Nathan turned around to see Jin approaching, three large guards flanking him. Jin had a tired smile on his face, which made Nathan curious. Uh, Just seeing if you're up there. I thought you were off-world. I couldn't contact your watch. I figured out how to block it from people trying to find me. Jin looked at the roofing van, standing a little ways off on its stubby robo-bug legs. Where'd you get that? Nathan shrugged. I got mugged, but I captured the muggers, dropped them off with the police. Police didn't want their POS van, so I guess it's mine now. Do you know if I need to register at some sort of DMV? DM what? What's that? Nathan sighed and his shoulders relaxed. You know, most of the time, I'm homesick for Earth. I think Earth was better. It was home. I want to go back. But then, someone like you says something like, what's the DMV? And it reminds me to appreciate these little things. Jin shrugged, not at all appreciating the gravity of Nathan's philosophical moment. And then he gestured at Bosco. And you got yourself some robot muscle, too. Very nice. Oh, which model is that? BA something? I don't remember. He scares the bejesus out of people, but he's as gentle as a kitten. Ha! Bosco said, turning his head a fraction more away from them. Nathan smiled. He's the reason I'm not tied up in the back of that bug van right now. Jin smiled and walked up to examine Bosco. Oh, he's one of those Aleph models. Don't see many of those nowadays. How can you tell? Mm, Honda track and hinge ball joints. They're immune to EMPs. Jin pointed at the shoulder. You only ever see these on Aleph models. Most people won't notice that, though. Nathan shrugged. Dan said most people didn't like them because they're not smart, but he seems clever enough. Ha! Bosco said. More than a grunt than anything else. Jin's eyebrows went up. You met with her? Without Akihiro? Yeah, I kind of screwed it up. I'm lucky I'm not dead, or in a box being carted off to some assembly prison. Nathan ran a hand through his hair. We talked about our mutual problems with 
trying to figure out what's going on with Maybar. But after that, it was kind of a steaming pile of disaster. Well, Jin yawned as he tapped his watch. A door on the belly of his house opened and five harnesses descended on cables. My meeting with a girl went decidedly better than your meeting with a girl. Aramis is a fascinating woman. When I first saw you as I was walking up, I thought of asking you if you would do a favor for her, but I think she's got it taken care of. What I want to hear about is the problems you talked about. The ones you and Dan did agree on, I mean. Nathan shook his head. Just that we both don't know what kind of world this is. It used to be a computer simulation, but it can't be anymore. Jin laughed loudly as he finished situating himself in one of the harnesses, and then he handed one to Nathan. Simulation? That is the biggest cock and bull story I've heard. Nathan frowned as he looked at the funny, triangle-shaped harness, confused. Well, what's your theory? The right one! The Ta delved into forbidden knowledge, learned the elemental secrets of reality, and created a new universe. Nathan rolled his eyes as he watched one of the bodyguards get into his harness, and then he copied him. Apparently Bosco already knew how to get into one because he was ready to go as soon as Jin was. That's just one of the cover stories they made up after the silencing. Jin shook his head. No. Oh, and hold on. A moment later, all of them were yanked upward, and the ground beneath pulled away, along with Nathan's stomach. A few seconds later, they were inside the house, and the door they'd come through closed and became a solid floor. Nathan placed a shaking foot down onto it and relaxed his death grip on the harness. Jin, you know who I am. Why are you arguing with me about this? Jin shrugged the question off and entered a hallway and went up some stairs. Nathan followed him into a sitting room with large skylights. Nathan tried to understand why this man was so confident in his creation theory when one of the creators was standing right next to him. Jin sat down in a comfy chair. Maybe you're lying. Maybe you're misremembering. I don't know. Sir, Bosco said, his voice droll. At least he does not believe the lie Prometheus adopted. That they found two planets with identical orbits, rotations, and gravity as that of Earth. The possibility of that is beyond nonsense. Well, Nathan said, looking up, at least Prometheus has two moons instead of one. That's different from Earth. Bosco grumbled, not appreciating the joke. Nathan frowned at Jin, who was smiling the whole time Nathan had been talking to Bosco. If I showed you the actual SSN and the world can, then you wouldn't think it was sorcery anymore. You know that symbol you see on MOA things? That's what they look like. A bunch of wings branching off of a main control unit in the center. Jin didn't reply or seem to hear his words, which just irritated Nathan more. Nathan walked over to a tall, narrow window. No way for me to get there now, with Threshold being watched so closely. Well, except for... In the sudden silence, Jin gave up pretending to not pay attention and leaned toward Nathan. Except for what? Nathan stood frozen with his mouth cracked open. That's what I can do, to figure out what's going on. I can go to monitor. Granite sharks? Why are you hunting granite sharks? Phyllis didn't seem worried that her voice might be carrying back into the restaurant's main dining room. Aramis sighed. 
One granite shark. Not granite sharks, plural. I have to take care of something. This doesn't make any sense. I have to break my bond with Paul. Phyllis's forehead filled with wrinkles. She half opened her mouth, but said nothing for a moment. When she did speak, she was louder and faster than before. How does a stupid boy have anything to do with what's going on? We have work to do here. We're selling out of zines every week, and I'm doubling the print order every week. There are thousands out there expecting us to put something together. There's no point in publishing our discussions without you because you're the crazy one that makes Vicky and me furious. Vicky is boring otherwise. I'm boring otherwise. We can't have you wandering off on some personal walkabout because you feel bad about some pretty face you can't get over. We definitely can't afford to have you eaten by sea monsters. Aramis stared back at her a moment, fuming with anger but not wanting to lash back. She kept her tone low as she spoke. We have an opportunity. Something bigger than a bunch of zines. I have a chance to get our ideas out to millions. Phyllis squinted. Then her eyes widened. That signature crease above her left eye, very firmly in place. What? Millions of what? Millions of people. Aramis lowered her voice even more. Possibly everyone in Pan. But I can't do it unless I break this bond with the stupid boy. I'll be back in a few days. I know what I'm doing. This is related to the big news Vicky said that she'd let you tell me about, isn't it? This is the big news. Please tell me everything going on right now. Snow fell all over, even though it was late March. None of it fell on Soma. She was shaded by the Galleria, which was floating, moored to the stone keep standing at the center of the large traffic circle. She wasn't sure if people were allowed to moor airboats up there, but she didn't care right now. The green grass of the roundabout had turned white from the countless little tufts of cold drifting down. Soma, hand-stuffed in the pockets of her wool greatcoat, looked across the grass and passed the encircling street with its insect-like buses and taxis, and passed the sidewalk with its bundled-up pedestrians, and up the steps leading up to Town Hall. Hemstock Town Hall, where the mayor with the bad attitude was waiting. Soma absently fingered the openings along the insides of her pockets, through which she could reach her hip holsters and pistols if she needed them. Hewn and Sorensen came up on either side of her. Hewn was layered thickly like her, but Sorensen was wearing a mere leather jacket over a light pantsuit. Sorensen glared at the building with a stare that was colder than her pale skin even looked. Soma frowned at her. You don't look happy. Old insecurities. Sorensen looked at her and her face softened just slightly. This is the reason the immortals are working for you. Not because you're setting them free. Not because you're offering us rights as full citizen. But because you're making stands like this. However. However what? It still feels like a hopeless battle. This mayor is just the first. It will be nearly impossible to form a political majority in favor of ending the Pitsveni productions. Too many Alephs are too rich from them. 
Hewn smiled. They won't take us seriously at first. They still don't think you'll pull off prosecuting all the soul offenders. Well, right now we need to make sure the mayor here takes us seriously. It was 5 p.m. and ridiculously hot, despite it only being late March. Paul remembered why he'd never went outside the city when he lived in Lutenia. Or even very far east within the city, the temperatures just steadily got worse and worse each kilometer inland. And right now he was over 70 kilometers from the beach, out in some hilly suburb where each hill had little houses scattered alongside the roads winding up their sides. Scattered and sparse, like the sagebrush covering every acre of dirt out here. In one of those houses was the serial killer who had murdered Paul. He could smell the general direction, but his confidence was a bit broken by the mistake from a few days ago. He'd been mostly sure then also, so he wasn't sure now how to gauge sureness with any accuracy. But that emotionless, creepy cop, Shackleton, was confident the killer was in this neighborhood. He didn't know where exactly, and Paul smelled something here that was really, really bad. Blood and sulfur and something else. It made Paul feel a little stupid for not realizing before that a serial killer would have multiple scents attached to him, not just Paul's. The distinct potpourri he smelled right now would have to be a pretty serious coincidence if this guy wasn't his killer. Feeling a little feverish, Paul looked over the hills and the houses and let the scents wash over him. There. That way. He adjusted the heavy bag on his shoulder, in which he held a couple secret weapons. His hands gripped into fists as he turned toward the hill maybe 1k away and began walking. Nathan paced up on the balcony on the very top of Jin's house, the smushing of his shoes on the white snow-covered deck seeming loud in the deep silence surrounding him. Bosco stood in the center of the balcony, facing no particular direction, snow gradually accumulating on his head, shoulders, and folded arms. Nathan looked north and frowned. He slammed a fist down on the railing, bits of snow falling off. You know, Jin said, appearing in the doorway to the house's bridge. You could travel there with my house. Nathan chuckled. Is it also a spaceship? Jin shook his head. No, but it has an interface installed so that an Aleph key can be plugged in, which lets the house teleport to any of the worlds that particular Aleph is authorized to visit. Nathan frowned. That's a thing? Jin nodded. They cost a fortune. Fortunately, I'm rich. That kind of travel is closely watched, though, so if you want to go somewhere that will draw attention... We won't have much time before they send someone after us. Half an hour to an hour, most likely. I recommend having a plan in place before we go. Nathan charged toward him and stopped with just a hand's breadth between their faces. Do you know what Monitor is? Jin shrugged. 
I've heard it's some sort of time capsule of what Earth looked like right before mankind left it for Maybar. Nathan shook his head. No, that's capsule. That's a different world. Monitor is a representation of what Earth looks like right now, using whatever data we can still get, which probably isn't much after 800 years. Oh, well, brilliant. Nathan nodded. I want you to take me there and drop me off in the center of Jerusalem. One ruble a kilo. Aramis stared at the gangly man standing on the dock between her and his well-used fishing boat bobbing there in the slip which, oddly, had a single stubby sail mast in addition to a huge motor in the back. The evening was as dark as full night, with heavy rain clouds overhead, and there was an icy cold mist blowing in from the sea. Aramis usually wasn't bothered by cold like that, but maybe the conversation was weakening her resistances. I don't understand. You'll get twenty times that. It's my boat. It's my fuel. It's my harpoon gun. It's my lamo torch. As he said the last one, he gestured at the odd little lamp hanging from the front of the boat. Right now, it was glowing a faint blue-green. Aramis was probably causing that glow, since she was technically a magical beast herself, being a Pravid. That was a good sign. If a water Pravid in human form caused it to glow bright enough to notice... It was sensitive enough to be in good working order. Something as big as a granite shark should make it glow a bright, mottled orange and green. Aramis sighed. Fine, but one condition. I need 200 milliliters of its blood. Harvest it immediately. The man squinted, then nodded. If, and only if, it's at least 1,500 kilos. Aramis looked at the boat, which didn't look like it could hold anything that big. She noticed an oversized crane at the back, which seemed encrusted in rust. There was a harpoon gun hanging on the wall of the little cabin with the steering wheel, plus two long harpoons hanging below that. All right, I guess I'll have to get a big one. The man laughed. That's not a big one. You catch me a big one. I'll give you two per, but I'd rather you didn't try. Little slip of a girl like you even with your water powers. A bowl that big would rip you to pieces. Aramis nodded. All right, let's get this over with. Hey guys, remember my friends Steve and Paul over at the Don't Panic radio show? Well, they just released a mini-series on that same feed called We've Got Issues. It's a collection of great bite-sized episodes that one by one dive into the comic books that were the direct inspiration for the movies that we've all seen that have made billions of dollars. One of them, Paul, has been reading all of these books all his life, but the other, Steve, is mostly new to comic books. So the two of them create a fantastic chemistry for making these stories accessible to everyone. 
You can find them all on the Don't Panic Radio Show podcast feed or at bigbroccolistudios.com. And as always, thank you for taking the time to listen to my audiobook podcast. Echelon is written and produced by me, Andy Wright. You can follow me online at A. William Wright. And I post a lot of artwork and progress artwork for this book on Instagram, especially. All music on the show is from the album Into the Dark by the band The Restitution. And this show is hosted by the folks at Anchor.fm. We're about to get back to the show, but just want to let you know that Chapter 4 of Echelon will be landing November 30th. Paul knocked on the door. He wasn't sure what else to do. He could demand everyone get on the ground, say he'd shoot anyone who doesn't do so, but he didn't have a gun. He had that walking cane. No one answered the door. There were no sounds from within. The entire building reeked of sulfur and multiple other scents, including Paul's own deodorant. Well, the brand of deodorant he had used here in Prometheus, anyway. It was so strange how something as simple as his own smell was different in Pan. But this was the place. The man was here. Paul cleared his throat. Open the door, please. No one answered. He pounded on the door again. Nothing. Now was the time. Paul set his heavy bag down, opened it, and pulled out a metal and plastic cube. He set it down, facing the building, then went back to the bag and pulled another one out and set it on the other side of the building. He put the bag back over his shoulder, reached in and pressed play on the gumstick music player linked to the two small but powerful speakers. A blaring guitar and pounding drums thundered out, deafeningly loud. He kicked the door in the door jam going with it and clattering to the stone entryway floor. He put his hands in his pockets and entered the house, the music blaring behind him. I know you're here. We need to talk. If singing a song loud enough to cover up your own thoughts from mind-listening ears, then deafening music should do the same thing. If you can't hear anything with your real ears, you probably can't hear anything with your magic ears. Especially if that music is Blood in the Snow by Coven. Of course, that also meant he couldn't hear anything. Still, his nose gave him a strong advantage. He headed down the stairs to go down to the basement. He braced himself, lifting up the cane as if it was a sword. Worried he'd find a new victim being tortured. He wasn't sure how he'd react to that, especially if they were already dead when he got down there. As he reached the last step, he heard a splash, even over the music blaring from above. He ran down, a rush of instinct coming over him. He came down a hallway, turned a corner, and saw a dark figure holding someone's head under the water in a bathtub. There was a moment when the dark figure looked up at Paul with wide eyes, bright against the dark gray of his mottled, rocky skin. The man then threw himself through a wall, filling the room with gypsum dust. Paul went over to the bathtub and pulled out the figure submerged in it. It was a young man, and the water was freezing cold. His skin was blue, from cold, not because he was a prey bead, and he was just wearing shorts and his arms were tied together with thin wire, very tightly. 
The man began coughing and heaving and throwing up as Paul pulled him out of the bathtub and set him on the rug beside it. Blood in the Snow ended, and the next song came on. The Nile by Pink Floyd. The slower metal made the neighborhood feel more melancholy, especially as people lethargically walked out of their homes with angry faces to try and figure out why there was music blaring so loudly in the early evening. Paul ignored all of them as he ran into the nearest house and kicked on the door. After a moment, a middle-aged woman appeared, irritated. Paul put the young man onto the floor in front of her. Call the police. Warm him up. Keep the door closed and locked. What? She said. Paul wasn't sure if she'd asked it because she didn't understand or because she couldn't hear him. Either way, Paul ran off, tracking the scent. His quarry wasn't far, but he was moving. Paul tried to catch up, but it was difficult. Paul was very strong, but he was realizing he was out of shape when it came to running. I know who you are, echoed out over the neighborhood. Paul ran harder, hoping the outcry was evidence that he was getting nearer. Follower of 777, the seven letters to be more precise. Y-S-H-M-S-S-H. Son of the Tetragrammaton, the four letters, the self-sustaining one. Paul tried to remember a song that he could have playing in his head to block out the man's ability. Because the music was so far away now that it probably didn't help. But he didn't see much point in it right now. So instead he focused on keeping his pace. You're the first one to come back to get me. The man laughed. I'm impressed. Maybe your seven really is real after all. Did you do what I said? Did you learn to hate the Alephs? Did you tell people to fear them? Paul had just cleared the last of the houses, running into open desert. Losing their occasional shade and having to dodge sage and thistle bushes made him suddenly feel sweatier, but he could now see a shadow up ahead of him. But mostly just a shadow because the man's skin and jacket were changing color to match his surroundings even as he ran. But Paul was catching up. Do you fear them, my friend? The man laughed, but then tripped over a sage bush and tumbled onto his face. Paul charged at him, but in his head, he thought about how he may need to check his strength. He wanted to pin the man down to the ground by the neck, but he didn't want to crush his neck and kill him. He tried to be gentle as he dropped to the ground, hunched over the man, and held him down. Getting a good look at the rocky-skinned face of the man that had killed him. I'm not your friend, and I don't fear anything. Paul reached into a pocket for something the cop had given him. You're now under the custody of the DAC. Due to your augmentations, you will be held at stove to await your trial. The man's eyes widened as he tried to see what Paul was doing with his face pressed against the ground. Wait, 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 you're a cop? No, 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 you're supposed to get revenge. Just then, he could hear Pink Floyd fading out, then Liar by Queen coming on his stereo. This is all wrong. You came back to me. No one ever came back to me. It's too perfect. The man was squirming and fighting him, making it hard for Paul to dig through pockets to find the injector with the serum that would deactivate the man's augmentations. Finally, he searched in the correct pocket and pulled it out. The man relaxed as he saw it. 
But you're not a Prevede. They did something different with you. I wonder... The dirt under Paul's knees shoved up on him, like the floor of a rising elevator, times a hundred. Then Paul was in the air. The sage and sky tumbled around him as he tried to figure out which way was up and which way was down. Somehow he managed to not drop the injector. Then, many seconds later, the ground aggressively asserted itself as down, meeting Paul's shoulder like a speeding train. The gray-skinned man snickered as he ran away, but Paul got up easily enough, his shoulder a little more than bruised, despite the impact. Paul did take pause as he looked at the field. There was an odd mound of dirt sticking out of the ground. The man had apparently used that mound like a catapult to launch Paul backward through the air. It would have been more shocking for him to realize this is what happened if Paul had not been there to watch Aramis's fight at Pan's Narthex. This guy could apparently control dirt the way Aramis could control water. Paul turned and saw the man running off deeper into the desert, but then the man jumped up and dove underground. Paul ran to the point where he disappeared, but only saw a slight disturbance in the otherwise solid ground. Irritated, he reached into his pack for his gumstick player and shut the music off. Paul cursed, looking around, catching his breath, realizing this fight was going to be more complicated than he'd anticipated. Nathan stood next to Jin, Akihiro, and Bosco on the bridge of Jin's flying house, looking out at the rough land stretching before them with either their jaws slack or their brows furrowed. Well, except for Bosco, who would probably still look unmoved even if he had a human face. Most of the land was a scene of nature swallowing up civilization. Stubby trees and bushes and dry grass had infiltrated streets and were growing right out through windows. There were ugly, dense apartment complexes and businesses and high-rises and scattered ancient ruins, all of them spouting greenery. But that was just on the periphery of the city, stretching off for kilometers in every direction away from the shallow hill of the city center. It was what was standing at that city center which had caught and frozen all their attention. Nathan had remembered it being a large area of stone buildings, churches and mosques and partial walls and ruins. But now there was a singular castle maze rising up gradually with each twist toward its tall center tower. The pathways were like the doodles he would do in the margins of his homework in elementary school, winding, twisting, dense. It was a huge, chaotic ziggurat. The hell is that? Akihiro mumbled as they drifted toward its towering center. Nathan shook his head. That wasn't there before. There used to be a, a wailing wall, the Dome of the Rock, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, a bunch of other stuff. It's the most holy structures in the whole world, all in one place. Jin snorted a laugh. Now there's a maze. Nathan looked at him. Well, here anyway. I doubt this is what Earth actually looks like now. I think this is some sort of monument to humans triumphing over religion. Sir, 
It was Bosco, who was looking to the south. There are craft approaching. Immediately after that, something started beeping inside of the house's bridge. Jin cursed and ran inside. He yelled out to them from inside. Yup, three boats, probably gammies. Akihiro cursed and gripped the railing tightly. Bosco looked at him a moment, then turned to Nathan. Sir, I am unfortunately unable to defend you against multiple Masayoshigami. Nathan nodded, then turned to Jin. Drop me off as close to the top center of that maze as you can, then take off. Jin frowned. I'm not going to abandon you here. I have a teleportation stone. Jin came out of the bridge and onto the balcony. You sure? If we jump, that means you won't have your key with you. Just drop me and Bosco off and let me worry about it. Jin begrudgingly went back into the bridge. Akahio and Bosco both kept their gazes toward the south. Even though there wasn't anything visible yet, at least to human eyes, Nathan had to lean over and grab hold of the railing as the whole house banked over and sped up, flying swiftly toward the center of the maze, not making any noise except the whistling of wind rushing over its blocky angles. It was surprising how something so large could move and change direction so quickly. The maze slash castle below them rushed past and the top slash center was all of a sudden directly below them. The flying house leaned backward as it slammed on the brakes to stop in the middle of the air. That's them. Akihiro nodded toward the horizon, where three black dots were now visible and seemed to be gradually spreading away from each other. Nathan ran inside, Akihiro and Bosco following him as he went down the stairs toward the bottom floor and the cable harnesses. He got there and was relieved to have Akihiro help him into the harness this time. Then the floor opened, and there was a rough, gray stone circle a dozen meters below him. Two paths branched off from that circle, and in the center of the circle was a spiral staircase going down. Bosco dropped downward in his harness immediately, falling fast and landing like a boss. Nathan looked at Akihiro and shook his head. Please do not let me go down that fast. Akihiro pointed at a little control pad on the harness. Then don't squeeze down hard on that. Nathan frowned, pressing the down button, and felt his stomach go into his throat. He heard the air whistling past him and someone yelling, then realized the person yelling was himself. The stone floor was approaching fast, so he let go of the button, but the floor was still rising quickly. He closed his eyes, expecting both of his legs to be broken. Then he ran into something. The impact was uncomfortable, but not painful. He felt himself in a sitting position and opened his eyes. Bosco had caught him. Bosco set him down on his shaking legs. Without missing a beat, Bosco drew that large pistol from his chest, which he'd had repaired yesterday. In the other hand, he drew the machete from his back. Then Bosco paused and looked at Nathan. Sir. Bosco extended the hand grip of the pistol toward Nathan. You may want this. Nathan frowned and pointed to the smaller pistol strapped to Bosco's thigh. No, you can keep the big one. I'll take the little one. Bosco fluidly holstered the large pistol, drew the smaller one, handed it to Nathan, and redrew the large one. There was no flare or flash in the movement, and it wasn't done so quickly it looked sloppy or rushed. It was deliberate and calm. You are a consummate professional, Bosco. Thank you, sir. 
Nathan looked down at the pistol he'd received. It didn't look small anymore. Now that it was in his hand, and it wasn't as light as he thought it would be. Sir! Nathan looked at Bosco, then ducked as Bosco seemed to point his pistol right at Nathan's head. Nathan went down to his hands and his knees as he looked behind him and saw a ghost. Literally, a foggy cloud of green-blue forming a vague shape of a ragged cloak, floating a few paces away. Under the hood of the cloak was a floating skull head filled with fangs. At the edges of the cloak were skeleton hands tipped with raptor talons. It was rushing right at Nathan as Bosco fired, his gun making a deep thud and steam rising from a small cylinder right behind the blocky barrel. A quarter of the ghost's skull was blasted into dust. The ghost didn't seem to notice, though. Nathan lifted up his own pistol and pulled the trigger over and over. His ears immediately rang a dull hum as holes formed all over the three quarters of a skull floating toward him. But the skull didn't slow down. Bosco sidestepped around Nathan to block the thing from reaching Nathan and swung at it with his machete. Bones shattered but reformed. One of the hands grabbing Bosco's neck. Bosco made a scratchy noise that might have been a laugh and then pressed a button on his machete. The blade vanished like before, becoming the blue-white wire frame. Bosco swung through the ghost again, and the entire thing turned into a wire frame, a bundle of glowing white lines, but also numbers, floating there without moving. Bosco's machete blade flickered out of existence, then back again, at a dimmer brightness, though it was slowly getting brighter, approaching its previous brightness. Nathan stood up, frowning. What the... He stepped over toward the thing that used to be a ghost. The lines made up the basic outline of the thing, and as soon as he got close enough to see the numbers, he realized what they were. Those are world gene attribute codes. Everything about this is weird. Giant maze castle. Murder ghost guards. I imagine they're supposed to be frightening, but it's not like anyone would make it to this world without first... We need to go. Now. Nathan looked at Bosco, then at both pathways branching off from the circular platform. There were more. Dozens of the murder ghosts coming from both. Oh, yes. Yes, let's go, now. They took off running for the staircase, spiraling down into the center. This is so stupid. It was bitterly cold. And the boat's few lights made the expanse of sky and ocean blend into a black darkness. Aramis sat up front in the bows, the still dull Lamo lamp bobbing from a pole right next to her head as the boat cut through the inky waves. She was wearing just her combat wetsuit. Her head, forearms, lower legs, and sides, with the holes cut out where her gills would appear, all burned from the icy, misty wind. But the worst was her right hand holding on to the bitterly cold steel of the boat captain's harpoon gun. She wished she could wear gloves, but they could get in the way once she got in the water. She hoped the Lamo lamp would light up soon. She also hoped it would never light up. 
hope is a stupid word. She said the words almost as a reflex. Right after it, realizing the statement didn't make sense. What did make sense was that hope wasn't actually a relevant part of the equation. If she hoped they did find a shark, and at the same time hoped they did not find a shark, then the two canceled out. She hoped that when she confronted Paul, he'd throw his arms around her and tell her he missed and needed her back and wanted to be with her forever. She also hoped that when she found a shark out here, it would rip her to pieces. She hadn't told anyone about that, about her still unbearable desire to be with Paul, or the vague hopes that she'd die suddenly. People became very upset if Pravids ever said anything that had any kind of suicidal leaning. The main point was that she wasn't just going to talk to Paul so that she could break the bond. This wasn't just about freeing her from his curse, his condition that she never put herself in danger of people hurting her. She was going to tell Paul the real reason she needed it broken. She was going to tell him that she was in love with him and couldn't stand having him in her life without being with him. She wasn't sure which would be worse, saying those words to Paul and having him still reject her or having the shark rip her apart. Not liking the path her thoughts were on at the moment, she sighed and set the harpoon gun down. She pulled out her pair of can headphones and her gumstick music player. This was her bright blue player, which had a few dozen Things Will Get Better songs on it. She put the headphones on and selected to have the playlist start with Simple Man. She sighed and relaxed a little as she listened to the familiar lyrics and melody. She pretended it was a song her dad had sang over her, in her head flipping both genders in the song. Her dad was one person that she had no memory of at all. A huge hole in her previed memory fogging. So, there was a tiny chance he might have said something like the words of this song to her once. To Aramis, it was a perfect balm right now. The greatest hope she had, the one that shouldn't be the greatest, but was regardless, was fading, fogged. A hope that someday all her failure and rejection and fatigue would be overshadowed. That someday she'd find someone who wanted her. That hope required her to be vulnerable. To put herself in danger of rejection and disappointment. But she'd rather hide in a tent and work on becoming a machinist than grow close to anyone in this new world. She'd rather hide in a restaurant and work on subversive zines and traitorous constitutions than get over losing Paul. She'd rather risk her life hunting a deadly shark than ask Paul to be the one to put himself at risk by coming back here himself so that they could break the bond. She'd rather be proud and do it all herself than risk having him say no. Only do this for me, son, if you can.
the words from the song converted in her head into, don't ruin yourself in trying to please me, my daughter. But for some reason, she ignored the plea, freezing on the prow of a decrepit fishing boat, waiting for a magic light to turn on to tell her a monster was near, was easier. Jumping into the ocean to fight that monster to the death was easier. Aramis had known two water pravids that had died doing this work. It wasn't necessarily illegal for her to do this without a license, but it was a violation of fishing guild regulations, which was why she was getting paid so poorly for it if she caught a shark in the first place. The boat turned slightly and hit a three-meter-tall wave head-on, the salty water completely engulfing Aramis for a moment. She shivered and coughed as water went up her nose and down her windpipe. An embarrassing mistake for a water fay, but she hadn't been paying attention. She took the headphones off. They were fine and the music was still playing, but the music was all garbled because the drivers were wet. She'd need to remember to rinse the salt out of them when she got back to shore. How much longer was she going to do this? Keep on running, avoiding failure and shame, afraid that everyone was always staring at her, staring as if she was a rotting piece of filth, refusing to move on, all the while insisting on trusting in a god no one else believed in, which was another source of shame her half-belief. She believed in seven, in theory, but the hope for life and eternity that was supposed to come along with that belief was faint. Could that combination ever be called faith? Greenish light burned to life next to her face, sending a wasting wave of fatigue over Aramis. She turned to the Lamo lamp, staring at it as if it had been listening to all of her thoughts and had figured it would be amusing to remove one of the hopes. She slowly turned her head forward. The sound of the boat's motor, before a constant whine in the background, stopped. The world was now filled with just the whipping wind and the sloshing and splashing of green-black water against the boat. Her muscles feeling soft and empty, she stood up and picked up the harpoon gun. It's close! the captain said from behind her, yelling out of the side window of the cabin. It knows we're here! Be quick or be dead! She nodded. Her head felt hot and the space between her eyes ached. Her shoulders felt tight and her head hung heavy from her neck. The fatigue washed down and into her stomach, settling into a pinching nausea. She took a step up onto the ledge of the bow and looked over down into the water. Thoughts pounded in her head in rhythm with her panicking heart. I am going to die. I am going to die. I am going to die. Shut up, she said to herself, then closed her eyes. Seven, I need your help. If you don't go soon, you shut up too, she yelled at the captain, then felt ridiculous. She even laughed at herself nervously. She looked down at the dark water. She remembered getting on the train to come down here to Sparrow. She remembered walking onto the docks to hire this boat. She remembered when she was young and was too afraid to jump into a cold swimming pool. She snorted another laugh as she thought she saw a faint flash of white moving deep below the surface. Here we go. 
she jumped into the water. The door opened and Soma stood up and yelled, What are we waiting on? Soma and Sorensen had been sitting in a conference room for two and a half hours, consistently being assured that the mayor just needed to finish up an important meeting. Hune was nowhere to be seen at the moment. The short secretary or intern or whatever was taken back a little at Soma's question, but recovered quickly. The meeting is almost over. Just a few more minutes. Soma turned away from him and to Sorensen. They say that every half hour. Sorensen didn't react. She was looking at the door on the other side of the conference room. I'm signaling the boat. I think they're going to try and kill you. Soma shrugged. Not surprising. You have the thing? I do, Sorensen said, tapping a pocket. Good. I just want to get this over with. That big fish was down here somewhere. Aramis didn't like lugging around the boat captain's harpoon gun while she tried to swim. It was heavy and big and awkward and it slowed her down. Her night vision wasn't very good in dark water like this. But that would work against the shark also. She suspected the granite shark could feel her movement in the water when she was close. Because she could also. Probably better than it could. But still, it was an alpha predator, and this was its home, its dominion. All of this was terrifying, but different from the fear she'd felt up on the boat. This was invigorating. Her heart was pounding. Her body felt warm and strong, with only a memory of the fatigue and lethargy from a moment ago. She felt alive and normal. And then she felt something moving. She saw a white blur, approaching fast, the shape of a mouth through the darkness. She thought it was closer than it was, but that was merely because she misjudged how large it was. Rows of teeth, stubby knives of white, serrated and brilliant. She crossed her arms in front of her and made the water between her and the beast flash freeze into a sheet of ice. A wall of bubbles flashed out all around the ice sheet expanding and rushing past her. It felt like she was being pelted by searing hot rain, but the ambient coldness that returned as the bubbles moved away soothed the pain so quickly that it was hardly worth noting. The shark slammed its face into the ice and didn't stop. The ice broke into several pieces, the largest one still in front of its face and rushing right for Aramis's face. She tried to swim backward, but it still hit her arms and her knees hard. She would have cursed if she wasn't underwater. She instead grumbled, the angry reverberation rushing from her nose down her neck and out the gills on the side of her torso. She planted her feet on the plane of ice and pushed back. The ice slid to the side, revealing the jaws as much closer this time. For a moment, time stopped, 
as Aramis locked eyes with the thing, her two eyes fixed on its fifteen, seven on each side, and the tiny center eye nestled in the top of its head. The moment passed, and Aramis kicked against water as frantically as she could. She was picking up speed and getting away, but not as fast as she wanted to. The harpoon gun was slowing her down. She aimed it at the open mouth and squeezed. But the granite shark seemed to anticipate and slammed its teeth shut. The clumsy harpoon hit the teeth and bounced right off, as if hitting a concrete wall. Aramis threw the gun away and picked up speed, swimming backwards and keeping her eyes locked onto the nose of the beast. She reached to her belt with both hands, one hand pulling out a long knife, the other pulling out a quad-lock pistol she'd obtained during her fight at the narthex. She pulled the dial back to get the pistol charging and gripped the handle of the knife tightly. A surge of energy rushed through her arm and from her hand and into the pistol. She visualized different ways to attack. She couldn't just turn the water in its mouth into ice or into an exploding cloud of steam. This shark's power over water was mostly passive, but that included instinctual defenses against Keshu manipulation happening that close to its body. Aramis could turn her fingers into knives of ice and drive them right up into the gills. She could rip the flesh of the gills apart, or she could drive her thumbs into its larger eyes, or she could grab onto a fin with one hand and just punch it over and over. While going back and forth over these ideas, the shark seemed to lunge through the water at her. She wasn't ready and had to dart to the side. She lost her sense of up and down, but she still knew which direction the shark was in. She flipped the knife over in her hand so that the blade was aimed down. The shark was darting at her again, its mouth open. Eyes wide, Aramis had an idea and charged. She thrust her knife forward and upward, right between two teeth. It slammed its jaw down, driving the knife even deeper into its gums. And Aramis felt, through the knife, the entire beast shiver. It reared back and opened its mouth, as if screaming. Aramis charged forward, a ludicrous feeling of guilt attacking the back of her mind at causing suffering to the creature she was trying to kill. She grabbed onto a fin as a shark tried to swim away, blood trailing away like a fog from the embedded knife. She pulled forward on the fin, stuck the gun up into the slats of one of the gills, and pulled hard, bringing the ring-shaped trigger all the way back to fire all four barrels. The rapid boom, 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 boom was so loud that Aramis's ears hummed, and she felt slightly dizzy, but the shark went limp and still in the water. It was over. It had been so quick. All that fear and preparation, and it was all over. She looked for her best guess at what up was, hoping she wasn't too deep. Dragging this monster's dead body to the surface was going to leave her completely exhausted. But exhausted was alive. <laughs>